1: Welcome in to the RotoWire NFL podcast brought to you by our friends over at Dynasty Owner. I'm your host, John McKechnie, joined as always by Mario Puig. We got a loaded show lined up for you guys today. We're going to be talking about a best ball that Mario and I are currently participating in. We're both uh, in very, very different draft slots, so we're going to kind of get into uh, how that draft slot informs how uh, we're approaching uh, the rest of our roster builds, Uh, so that'll be coming up in a little bit. We're also going to get into Mario's 35-round NFFC best ball. That is, that's deep. You're you're getting you're really really getting into the weeds at at round thirty five. I don't even that know is, who even is there. That's so up my
2: alley though. I was shocked to learn that this was a contest because I've I've always been the idiot in those you know twenty and eighteen round best ball leagues, thinking like, man, I wish I could get another five rounds so I could get these great picks like uh, James Robinson or something. Yeah, like Chris, Chris Moore. This is it's the like, year. Uh, my team's all right, but I really wish I could have added Tavian Feaster in the 21st <laughs> round. Um, so anyway, this this draft is kind of interesting because uh, it, it's a different ecosystem when it's that long. But we'll, we'll talk about that and uh, certainly we'll have our, our best ball 10 example to kind of contrast with it.
1: Yes. So looking forward to that. But uh, we had some breaking news happen. Uh, breaking, maybe not the best word here. But... Um, no it is (laughs) yes you're right it actually is um so uh if you're out there listening uh earlier thursday um it was reported uh that debo samuel suffered a broken foot earlier this week on tuesday uh according to ian rapaport of nfl network uh looks like he underwent surgery already Uh, And the timeline is about three to four months, 12 to 16 weeks. So uh, that's a pretty lengthy um, recovery time that obviously puts uh, his start of the season in serious jeopardy here um, and maybe well into the season as well. We, of course, expect him to be able to play this year at some juncture, but this really, uh, really changes things for him. Um, for the San Francisco offense and I think you know maybe even just uh, like the San Francisco outlook um, on this season as as a whole here um, because he was just such an important cog uh, there for them towards the end of last year so uh, what is your initial reactions here what what are we supposed to make of this
2: well I think it's more or less going to be fine it's I guess most concerning for me relative to Jimmy Garoppolo actually just because I don't know if he has the abilities to offset the, the loss of uh, or, or um, you know, containment of, of Debo's placement in the early season game plan. Like he should be fine to play, first of all. Like if at most he would seemingly miss something like two weeks and even that. Uh, might indicate something like a setback, because this is, I guess, a Jones fracture, which is a pretty sharp distinction from the Liz Frank sort of fracture that uh, guys like Marquise Brown and Cam Newton had. The Jones fracture, I guess, is more of like a two-month kind of thing. So maybe Debo would miss some training camp or all of it even. And and I guess the other thing is it's like aggravation, you know, setbacks. Avoiding those is, is like the main key to this, because the 49ers have Trent Taylor on the team. He actually had a Jones fracture last year, and they kind of screwed it up, it seems like, because he just kept having these rec- – he had a – I don't know if it was technically a setback, but I feel like he had like multiple procedures done on it. And I remember they kept having to adjust and then kind of uh, like obscure his prognosis. Like they'd, they'd just be saying, yeah, he should be back pretty soon. And then it's just that he never came back, never played last year. So there is a way for it to go completely wrong. And There's already – Found a way to make that happen, but presumably they won't do what they did to screw up the Trent Taylor case. And if if they don't screw it up by rushing him back too quick, then you know, knock on wood, this should be something that more or less resolves itself in eight, ten weeks, something like that. So unless they do screw it up like they did with Taylor, I think we can expect Debo, or you know, have a reasonable of. About- Amount of optimism that he'll be out there week one but maybe he does something more like a 2530 snap per game kind of workload for the first two three four weeks as opposed to 5565 sort of snap workload but I would I would generally say it's 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 only Garoppolo who loses something here and given the way Shanahan is so crafty as a play caller the 49ers might more they, they might they might fully withstand any particular thing they lose. In the passing game by just kind of coming up with more tricks in the ground game because it's they need they need like two or three weeks uh, Of tricks and I feel like shanahan can come up with
1: that if it was sure. an
2: entire season problem, that'd be different, I guess
1: Yeah, definitely. So, um, all right. So it sounds like Samuel will be back by by september So won't miss a, a ton of time into the season if if the uh, recovery ends up going according to plan Um, But with that, I mean, does this change your outlook on any uh, anyone else in terms of these 49ers pass catchers? Is this something that, you know, maybe nudges uh, George Kittle up your board a little bit? Does it uh, give you any interest in maybe taking a flyer on Kendrick Bourne late? Does it bump Brandon Ayuk up a little bit more? Anything like that?
2: I think the Marcus will react to this, but I don't think they really should. Uh, like the, again, to me, it's just about Garoppolo. Really, like I, I think this is the kind of thing that might deprive him of one or two good games that he would otherwise be pretty likely to have if Debo were at full. But I don't think to um, like I think Kittle first of all is pretty much maxed out, and I think if people go elevating him on the basis of this injury, they're crazy. I don't. I, I think if anything, that guy's marked for regression both because he's got a a pretty long durability history that no one talks about and because it's just it's really hard to continue for a third year in a row two years of kind of like superhuman per target numbers like I I know that he runs for eight and a half yards after the catch per catch because he's insanely good at running after the catch but even the best players get hit with meaningly meaningless regression from time to time and I think Kittle uh, is, is kind of just due for that sort of arbitrary bad luck and I I don't think that Debo playing less creates any new ceiling for him like I feel like he's already there uh Ayuk I would imagine is who gets chased the most from this and I won't have any part of that like I think he's fine for the scheme but you know what if Debo's not on the field that's one of those things where it starts to change the whole calculus of the offense and whereas Ayuk I think works perfectly fine in theory in the Shanahan offense with Kittle and Debo on the field, because the defense just can't, it can only give so much attention to Ayuk at that point. And like the, the ways that they, uh, you know, pay less attention are, are sort of things that he's good at exploiting if things do end up that way. But if, if there is no Debo and if they're allowed to focus more on Ayuk, then any sort of deficiency in a set matters more. And I I never really thought he showed as much skill as like his numbers and as, as much as the, uh, NFL scouts, Thought that he showed at Arizona State because it was just these plays that happen over and over where he kind of just takes a, a slant that he, you know, he runs the slant well, whatever, but he runs for these, you know, 70-yard touchdowns because he splits the corner and the safety after, and there's there's no weak side linebacker uh, assisting in the, in the coverage. There's nobody – getting in the middle of the field to disrupt this throwing lane, it's always there. And all he ever does is run a slant and then split the safety in the corner. And it's going to be tougher than that. So it's, it's not something that where I just see the usage going straight to Ayuk and and him doing the same thing that he would have done otherwise, or like the same things that Debo would have done with those targets. I think you have to assume a diminishing return, even if he gets more targets. And I don't think that's, uh, I don't think you can take that for granted either because we could just as easily see them do sort of like a committee approach, like, Jalen Hurd might get you know 10 more snaps a game and we might see Pettis and Bourne get a handful of more snaps it might be something like that rather than anything new coming about but we'll I'll say either way uh, I have believe this the whole offseason I think the, the receiver that you buy in this team uh, aside from Debo of course is, is pretty much Trent Taylor in the last round and I, I still think that but it, it doesn't have anything to do with Debo's injury. Okay, just just based on, you know, you're I think he'll displace Kendrick Bourne. Okay. like I don't think Kendrick Bourne is that great. I think Kendrick Bourne's just like a swing backup type to Shanahan and Taylor is the starting slot receiver if he's healthy. So he's got an injury history at this point. Like, again, he was the Jones fracture last year and it they they screwed it up a, a bunch of ways. But if he's fine now. I mean, before he broke his foot, I remember the San Francisco beat writers talking about how they thought he was going to lead the team in receptions last year. So I think that in the last round, you could do far worse than him to begin with. So I just hope that, you know, I hope I can keep getting him there, and and I hope that this this Debo injury doesn't result in Trent Taylor going in like the fifteenth round. Now, um, I expect Ayuk to jump, and uh, I don't expect Taylor to jump. So fingers crossed there.
1: Yeah, I'll I'll be personally a little bit surprised if if we see a mainstreaming of, of, of Trent Taylor here. I think I think that you have it right where uh, Ayuk you know, the, the first round rookie, um, sees the draft helium, uh, way sooner, um, than, than any sort of Trent Taylor bump. I think we will be well into August before like that sort of hype train maybe, maybe starts coming out of camp. Let us hope. Um, it's, so looking at, at IU one more time from, from a different angle, just in terms of other receivers that you can get, uh, in, in similar parts of the draft as him. So you got like guys like James Washington, um, Denzel Mims, a fellow rookie, um, I'll skip Alshon Jeffrey because that's like a whole other can of worms um Alan Lazard so like where do you where would you like view Ayuk among that sort of tier
2: so I didn't really have any big problem with him at that price tag like he's going later on best ball tens the past week than James Washington so I I think that's reasonable it's like that they're kind of similar categories of guys who are in passing games that could be pretty good but aren't guaranteed to be. Uh, they're, they're sort of fixed in their, their functions, but they could both be good at those particular functions. And if if the offense as a whole is healthy enough, they might kind of go along for the ride. But I, I don't think I want to pay more than that for Ayuk, and I think he's definitely going to start costing more than that. And even at that original starting price, as much as I think it's justifiable to spend it on him, I'm still not the one making that pick. Like I'm taking these guys going later yet. Um, Players like Randall Cobb and LaVisca Chenault. I did those two over um, Duke and that was was before we're talking the price increase. So I know I'm not going to get anything uh, or I I would anticipate I'm not going to get any shares because – I, I just don't think I project him any better this year than Trent Taylor. And it's like, why, why would I pay, you know, f- four or five rounds more for, for somebody that I just don't think is going to do more.
1: Interesting. Yeah. That, no, that's a, that's a good way um, of framing it and just looking at the ADP right now. I see Antonio Brown sneaking into around the, Oh, Stephen the Sims. Hundreds. God, why is that still happening? Stephen
2: Sims down at a uh, two twenty in the best ball tens in the past uh, week. Whereas, Ayuk was way up, Ayuk's up at 187. People are taking D.D. Westbrook over Steven Sims. I don't I don't know what people are looking at. Anyway, yeah, there's there's some receivers that I like in this range quite a bit more than Ayuk, even though Ayuk uh, is not among the most poorly priced in the range, if that makes any sense.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Support for this podcast comes from Wild Turkey Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Let's tune in to their one-on-one with Jamal, a real bartender from Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta. <laughs> I really get into the backstory of whatever I'm pouring out of respect. There are literally years of experience behind these bottles. Wild Turkey, same recipe since 1942. If you want a true classic, this is what you want to order. Wild Turkey, Wild Turkey distilling company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky copyright 2020 Campari, American New York, New York, never compromised drink responsibly.
1: Um. All right. So let's get into uh, the best ball that you and I are participating um, over on best ball tens. So that means it's a full point PPR um, Mario, you had the third pick. I had the 11th pick, and I was dreading having the you know a pick uh, at that stage because I, you know, you run into that tier of running backs that, that's very very difficult to sort out. Uh, yeah. w- would like to hear y- your opinion on some of those guys though, um, and then just kind of what it means for the rest of, of uh, my draft. I've never been the the tight end in the first round type of guy, even at like Gronk's peak or anything like that. Um, so. Before we get to mine, let, let's start uh, with you going with uh, Zeke at three. Yeah, so
2: I guess this was kind of in the news since the last podcast, too. But he, of course, was diagnosed with COVID, and I don't know if they've if, – I haven't seen any reports about when they think he was exposed and when he was tested and what sort of timeline they're looking at. But as of, I want to say, two days ago, they were saying he had no symptoms, that – It was either a random test or a test that they did because they did some sort of like contact tracing, basically. Uh, In any case, you know, that that's such a weird, uh, morbid subject. And I don't really know what's responsible to to offer on it. But at least, you know, he's he's in that age group where, as far as I know, there hasn't been any any consistent uh not like any any statistically significant group of um, people of his sort of demographics ending up with any sort of bad symptoms and yet there was that von miller thing and he's he's over 30 so it's it's hard to tell where the line is on this stuff or what anything what anything means in any given case at all but he was expressing some sort of like ongoing like lung conditioning the, the difficulties like he was trying to build up his his wind break, basically and he he just couldn't do it uh, as as quickly as he thought he would when he was recovering. However, that was a, that was a few months ago, and I haven't heard anything about you know Von Miller still tr- uh, struggling to catch his breath. So hopefully that's well in the past for Von Miller because if it is well in the past for him, then a player like Zeke should be fine. But yeah, I did think about it for a second. I was like, I don't know. I guess it, like I, it felt like not enough was known about what it means for him to for me to not pick him at sure. the third pick when he would so other, when he would otherwise be like clearly the pick that I would make. So uh, felt a little anxious about it. But I, I went ahead with him anyway, because I, I feel like if, if everything were all equal, there would be a case to take him as high as first overall. Not that not that I would personally make that case. And I certainly don't rank him ahead of Saquon or McCaffrey. But he's in that kind of upside category when everything is right so uh, i think there's a there's a distinction between him and kamara the the next option that i would have considered because kamara basically needs the touchdowns uh, to, to reach the kind of value that people are accustomed to with him whereas zeke's going to get plenty of catches nowhere near kamara's level of course but still plenty of catches and uh like the the cowboys compulsively give him 20 plus carries a game which you know there's there's not many players in that category yeah, exactly. after him
1: yeah, it's like him and McCaffrey as far as like that, that level of, of rushing workload um, is concerned. So, yeah, uh, that that definitely made sense. And, you know, him, between him and Kamara, um, I think that would have been a tougher call this time a year ago. But I think I think after last season, I, I lean Zeke, you know, probably like 80-20 over Camara. Like if I'm picking three and they're both there um, 10 times over, I'm, I'm going Zeke um, eight out of those times. Um, so for me, me, um, I was at pick 11, um, and there was a a number of running backs there on the board that were appealing. Um, Austin Eckler was there. Um, Derek Henry and Nick Chubb had just gone off the board. So I, I was looking at guys like Eckler, Kenyon Drake, uh, Miles Sanders, um, and so on. Uh, but knowing, knowing the, the guy that was picking 12th, um, I figured that he was he would have gone with Kelsey and I, w- I wouldn't have been able to get Kelsey on the back end of of this wheel. So I just went with Kelsey and just kind of hoped that he would help uh, sort out that running back group for me a little bit and make, make my choice a little bit easier. Um, I wanted to leave this w- with Kelsey picking at this stage of the first round. So I just went with it. Um, I, I just feel strongly, uh, especially in, in PPR, I think he's just you know, pretty much infallible. It's pretty hard to argue against him as the number one fantasy tight end. Um, And with, with the way that the board fell um, I liked going with with him over, you know, one of the receivers or one of those running backs there at, at 11. So uh, that definitely changes my approach the rest of the draft, but um, I was happy to go with, with Kelsey there uh, leading things off.
2: Yeah. 11, especially with the way that this particular draft order went about 11, has to be the worst pick. (laughs) Sorry. Um, just because you're in that, like that terrible point where I I, I like Eckler, I would have taken Eckler, but there's still, there's like that weekly floor drop off from Henry and Chubb and Mixon to to Eckler. If only because it's just Eckler is kind of like the, um, the the more affordable version of Kamara where, you know, he has no shot at imitating the rushing functions of these guys that he's going right next to, but you're banking on him playing with a, uh, in, staying involved in a passing game that's healthy enough to make up the difference. And, you know, people get more spooked about the Chargers than they do the Saints because Drew Brees scores a lot of touchdowns. Tyrod Taylor generally has not, and so on. Um, but I, I probably would have gone Eckler there just because the way that the markets, are looking right now in most drafts like it's it's just really difficult to get the running back kind of upside that you want after the fourth or fifth round or so and when you're stuck at the ends of the draft order you you get stuck with these really unfair basically uh positional runs sometimes where you make a pick that like every sort of value model tells you to and it doesn't really matter because it's uh I guess the most extreme instances I've ever seen of these were in my home leagues where I'd go in and take running backs in the first three rounds while all the other uh, 11 people who are, you know, from Wisconsin and are big Packers fans all take quarterbacks every single pick. (laughs) And so it's like (laughs) you get to your third round pick and it's like the best, the best quarterbacks like Eli Manning. And you're like, what the hell happened? (laughs) Um, So yeah, when you're at the, when you're at the, the, the polls of the, the draft order, And you go into that long, whatever that is, 24, 23 pick stretch. It's like there's a lot that can go wrong at the running back position in that weight. So that's that's what I probably would have done there. But, yeah, in terms of the value, it's like I, I would have taken Eckler. But if Dave had taken Miles Sanders and then Drake, I wouldn't have known really what to do at the, at the second pick. It's like, I guess I would have uh, nothing wrong with Tel- uh, Travis Kelsey, but I guess I would have had to take a receiver there. Cause I, I, I wouldn't have wanted any of the running backs left. Like I, I'm, I'm too, uh, I'm too leery of, of Josh Jacobs and Aaron Jones to take them over a receiver like Tyree or Julio or Hopkins.
1: Okay. Yeah. So the way that, that I viewed it, um, I, I figured that Eckler would, would be gone after, after the Kelsey pick. Um, I didn't know who, Who would be uh, next of of that uh, cluster of picks between uh, Drake Sanders or Jacobs? So Drake comes off the board with the first pick in round two. So I was stuck between uh, Sanders and Jacobs, and you know I did some. I I take Sanders. Yeah, yeah, did some comparison shopping, and I like Jacobs a lot, um, but it just feels like there's so much room for you know for a volume increase for Sanders and like what he showed down the stretch last year when he was healthy and kind of that, that number one in Philly. Um, I had kind of forgotten how impressive he was down that stretch. Um, so, you know, with, with that, I, I know that Philadelphia just uh, lost one of their offensive linemen to an Achilles, so that that stinks for sure. But um, I still think that Sanders is, is leaps and bounds and uh, better than anyone else at at running back in Philadelphia. And I don't think that he's going to come off the field necessarily on passing downs the way that uh, Jacobs, you know, probably will uh, between uh, Richard and uh, Lynn Bowden. So and I know that Mayock has has kind of Fluffed up Jacobs' pass catching and, and saying that he'll he'll be a little bit more involved this year. If that's true, then I, I think Jacobs would would have been a fine pick um, at at thirteen or whatever. But I knew that Sanders would be involved in both, and I think that there's there was enough room for improvement from Sanders uh, this year on on a better team uh, than than the Raiders. So
2: yeah, uh, yeah uh, sorry, real quick. Yeah, I think it was definitely the right pick because actually, it's not often anymore that Sanders even gets that far in the draft order. Uh, like in the NFFC best ball draft that I did, I'm pretty sure he went seventh, really? so or er, eighth, something like that. Like I took I took uh, Joe Mixon with my first pick, and somebody took Sanders before my pick, so. Uh, I think I think I had the tenth pick it might have been so maybe maybe they took him ninth and for some reason Mixon was available at ten. but in any case, people in the the high stakes leagues are taking Sanders consistently over Nick Chubb and uh, they're 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 chasing him in the top eight top ten now
1: Wow that's that that might be a little bit rich for my blood. I certainly wouldn't take him over over Chubb even even in PPR um but nor I, yeah, I guess you're not surprised by that. Yeah, we, I think we're we're in lockstep on, on that one for sure. But um, yeah, either way, uh, Sanders had like re- really promising um target share and and like you know what he was do the, the efficiency with his targets compared to Jacobs. So maybe you could argue that, that Jacobs has has room for improvement there. But um, I know for sure that that Sanders already has that element of his game uh, nailed down and it's going to be consistent. So I like Sanders there. Um, so leaving this this uh you know sort of wheel uh w- at 11 and, and 14 with um with kelsey um and with sanders i just love the the receivers that i'm going to be able to get um in the mid 30s enough to where i was fine with with leaving uh the, the tyreek hill uh types on the board there because i knew i was going to attack that that next tier down the line with with uh, my next selection so that that's kind of the uh, we're we're not super far into this draft beyond that uh, we're just towards the end of the second round now i know you just made your second pick uh, not too long ago um, but yeah that that's the way i wanted to set it up i wanted to leave with at least one running back from picking at the end of the first um, and then set myself up to attack receiver hard uh, in these next few rounds
2: yeah and i think that's in most cases the sort of approach you'll want to take is assuming that you get at least one really expensive running back early in the first three rounds and my personal ideal is to get two running backs in those first three and the the thing that keeps occurring with me and it happened in this draft too is if I have one of the first three picks I'm taking Lamar Jackson in the second round because I always take that running back be it Christian McCaffrey Saquon Ezekiel Elliott and then in the late second round, I don't like the running backs anymore. And my plan in the first place, regardless of where I'm positioned in the draft order, is I'm going to ha- hammer the wide receiver position in, in rounds four through eight. Because there's there's just uh, – you almost have to call it a surplus. I mean with with how much of the league has gone three wide receiver. It's like in that NFFC league, there's guys like Tyler Boyd and Christian Kirk who in my opinion have pretty obvious top 15 upside in PPR. And yet they're going in like the ninth round. Because there's there's just so much there's such a glut of of, of uh, receivers who who project for that kind of uh, you know one thousand one hundred yard to twelve hundred yard sort of baseline and the people who are spending on Tyreek and Hopkins and Julio it, Chris Godwin whoever in the second round they're not necessarily picking those players because they're maybe taking the running backs at that point like unless you're in a draft full of the, of true uh, zero running back sort of disciples you generally don't have the scenario where you get to the seventh and you're like oh crap i have to take a, you know whatever like me hardman as my wide receiver too like that doesn't really happen it's like you can wait at receiver and still not really be tested for, for getting enough enough depth whereas at running back it's pretty easy to get to the fourth round and just be like i want to quit this draft
1: <laughs> right so i'm worried about that already but um you know what We'll see what what and especially if I if I double tap receiver coming up here, which I might if if the board ends up following. Honestly, right. there's
2: no need because there's there's going to be guys in like the fifth, the sixth, the seventh, and uh, I, I swear you know if if I pick. Mecole it'll be because I was going to do it anyway and not because I'm trying to break your stack but just for like a general strategy thing I would try to get Mecole and maybe Watkins too you can get Watkins really cheap people people are acting like Watkins isn't going to play this year which is I don't know what I don't know what anyone ever thinks about Sammy he, he, I feel like he never gets understood um but yeah if you get Kelsey and Hardman and Watkins for let's say like you you know the first pick for Kelsey the eighth or seventh pick for Mecole and then like the 10th pick for walk that could get you the hot you know not that not that we want to think in these lines or anything but if, if Tyreek Hill were to miss time you know that would basically give you the highest scoring Chiefs pass catcher any week that Hill was not
1: man yeah that that would be a pretty legit setup so it's um, something uh, that I'm definitely going to have to consider but um, you know talking about maybe not going to receivers there with with those next picks in the mid thirties. I've noticed the internet um, has caught up or, or started talking a little bit more about Calvin Ridley, someone that we focused on, um, a couple weeks ago, and that's not to say that like we we started the hype train or anything, but I, I've I'm just saying that I've noticed it's gotten noticeably louder. I I've again huh. I, I felt like I hadn't seen anything about Calvin Ridley until like early June, um, and then you know we talked about him on the on the podcast, and like this week he, he's been like everyone everyone's like favorite sleeper. I'm on I'm on the really? Calvin Ridley hype train. Yeah, this this and that. So I've seen maybe it's just the uh, you know, google listening to my thoughts enough to where like they're just going to put more calvin ridley things in front of me Uh, but either way i'm seeing it man Nice. I hadn't seen that I had
2: seen previous to our podcast uh, a handful of sharp people expressing, you know, calvin ridley optimism. So, uh, it, you know, john if you want and I, I guess I should have uh seen to this Before I I got into this podcast with you um but in that, we we could maybe use this as as a as a point to to switch toward that NFFC baseball draft, which I'm doing because it's it's well beyond the second round, sure. and I took Calvin Ridley in it. Uh, so let's see. Oops, I'm I'm actually on the clock. Sorry, guys. Um, well, while, you, been, while
1: you're on the clock, I can hit this read here from our friends at Dynasty Owner. Oh yeah, you can do that. So before we switch on over to our NFFC discussion, we got a message from our friends. Over at Dynasty Owner, you guys have heard of them. The best fantasy football leagues are those where every owner constantly pays attention, responds to trade offers, changes their lineup, and are always looking to improve their team. There is no off-season for these owners. That's who you're challenging yourself against in Dynasty Owner, other elite fantasy football players who are committed to competing dynasty owner is the only fantasy football platform with a patent game using actual nfl salaries and contracts combine this with a salary cap elite trading options advanced team rosters and devoted elite owners to compete against and you're faced with the same decisions nfl owners and general managers must make if you're ready to take on the best then don't miss out join the waitlist at dynastyowner.com that's dynastyowner.com Dot com all right mario so we were just talking about uh the draft that that you're that's ongoing for you that you took ridley in uh have you made your selection yet
2: yeah i did and it's it's going to sound very weird for a number of reasons but w- we'll explain it uh it's it's a different kind of economy with this sort of league because when it's 35 rounds and it, it, it by the way this 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 uh it's a one hundred and fifty dollar league. So it's it's different than the best ball tens because it's like the high stakes best ball equivalent, basically. And there's some sort of tournament payout structure that I didn't read because I'm stupid. But um, the basic difference is it's thirty five rounds. It includes not just defenses like best ball ten drafts do. It also includes team kickers, which I don't know. What I'm going to do about that? Uh, I'll probably screw it up. I'm going to make every other pick perfectly because I handled kicker, team kicker, wrong or something. But um, because it's 35 rounds, the way I'm reading that is you can kind of pad, especially the receiver position, but also the running back position a little bit in the later rounds in a way that you can't at quarterback because quarterback it's just you know we got like. Tw- two starters who we're pretty sure are going to start all year and then you're down to a bunch of guys who just don't really have secure playing time and then that group itself is pretty thin like it'll I think be out uh, like we're probably gonna see Nick Foles go off the board in this draft by like the 14th round or something because if, if you can get three quarterbacks who are guaranteed to start all year, I feel like that's a pretty nice uh, – it's good to have that at, at quarterback because whereas you can pad your your running back and receiver positions late with guys who could – who will have uh, – you know, they're like practice squad and bottom of the roster types. But as long as they make the team, all that they really need is for someone ahead of them to get hurt, to get on the field. And at, at quarterback, it's like – some of these cases we can guess who would start in the event of an injury – and we, we might even pick some of those players in this draft, but it's just going to be a lot easier to end up wasting a, a backup quarterback kind of pick than it does a backup running back or receiver. So especially it's basically like, do you want to, do you want to go into the, the, the year with uh, a third quarterback, like Jalen hurts, or would you rather go into the, to the year with my third quarterback, who's Ryan Tannehill. Uh, And just, you know, make like a Trent Taylor pick later instead of the, I don't know, Mike Williams pick that you that you got instead of the quarterbacks. Like that's that's the kind of trade off that I feel like Mm. people are going to have to look at here. And so that's why I took Tannehill as my third quarterback in the 11th round. And I took Dak Prescott in the fourth round which was six picks after someone took Kyler Murray in the fourth round. So uh, I've got Jimmy Garoppolo in the ninth round, Tannehill in the 11th. I'm I'm – I think I'm set at quarterback now, and I I really like the way it looks because I think between the three – and by the way, it's not just that it's the 35-round dynamic. It's the, the touchdowns are six-point-per-passing touchdown in this. So I feel like that raises the stakes. Like waiting on quarterback may well prove the right call in a league like this, but it's less likely to. Because of that six-point distinction. And it, it also uh, doesn't create as much of like the rushing loophole specifically. So like if you're banking on Tyrod in every league giving you, whatever, 400 rushing yards to offset only throwing 22 passing touchdowns or whatever. In this league, it, it might not really make the difference you expect. And, uh, so I've, I've put a pretty high priority on having my quarterback position solved because there's, there's still one guy in here who has, uh, just like one quarterback. And I know that a lot of other people are going to be looking to get their backups and their third quarterback in in these upcoming rounds. So I'm hoping that by taking Tannehill, someone I normally don't target, by the way, um, I'm hoping that by having him and Jimmy Garoppolo behind deck that I can just go hammering wide receiver and running back from this point. But I think I'm doing pretty good at those spots too. So I had the 10th pick. I took Joe Mixon, which surprised me. I didn't think he would be there. Uh, Miles Sanders, John, actually went 7th in this draft, That's which high. was not, o- not only ahead of Joe Mixon. It was ahead of Derrick Henry and Kenyon Drake. So Kenyon Drake was the pick immediately before mine. I have Mixon well ahead of him, so I was pretty uh, lucky to have that. Sure. And I knew what I was going to do. I was, like When I saw Mixon, I was like, I'm definitely taking a running back with my second pick too because – Austin Eckler and Nick Chubb are on the board. I bet one of them is going to make it back. And it wasn't Eckler, but Chubb did. So I've got – yeah, in the first round, I've got Mixon. The second round, I've got Chubb. Third round, I took A.J. Brown. And this is – because it's best ball and because it's kind of like this high-stakes tournament sort of scenario, I was more willing to take A.J. Brown than I would would have been normally because – the way I was thinking of it was basically who has the absolute highest upside at this pick. And I was choosing between AJ Brown and Mike Evans, Kenny Galladay, Odell Beckham, Amari Cooper. Those were, those were the options. And I basically just thought, yeah, AJ Brown doesn't have as high of a floor as any of those guys. And, uh, he, he could kind of just disappear if the Titans can run all day, which they they always do if they have the chance. But then I thought, well, not that I, not that I want this to happen, but like if Derrick Henry got hurt, AJ Brown might go from like the eight to the highest scoring wide receiver since Antonio Brown. And so I took him there because it was like he's going to be good. It's that's not any I'm not worried about AJ Brown having 800 yards this year. Um, I'm just worried about him having like four useful games that are huge and no other good ones. Mm-hmm. But I think he'll do at least that. So I'm not worried about getting less than that. If I can get more than that you know maybe my team would be cooking in that case um but yeah so I'll just I'll just read out the list here it's Joe Mixon in the first Nick Chubb in the second AJ Brown in the third I took Dak in the fourth because it wasn't clear at that point how the quarterbacks were going to work like people took Lamar Jackson earlier than usual by about six picks Patrick Mahomes earlier by about the same amount like I said Kyler Murray went six picks ahead of where I took Dak so I was worried about getting to my sixth round pick and having to choose between like Carson Wentz and uh I don't know Daniel Jones or something like that and I I don't want that kind of anxiety so I just took Dak I was like this might be a reach but whatever I I'm not worried about Dak and the the six points per passing touchdown is makes me pretty anxious about punting on quarterback so I decided to just kind of settle it there then I then we got to the the favorite part of the draft for for me this year which is when we get to hammer those mid-round receivers because it's you, you just can't screw up in that part of the draft, if you're taking receivers, like every pick, you're going to feel so smart because it's it's all it's all good. Uh, you can't really go wrong with Calvin Ridley, who I got in the fifth round after oh, Dak jealous. Prescott in the fourth. And uh, some of the picks that were after that were, um, you know, the Seattle guys. I'm not getting much of them. I think they're closer to maxed out than people think, but I don't, they're not going to hurt anybody. Um, they're, they're obviously very good players. Terry McLaurin, who I love, um Let's see. DJ Chark. Really like him. Chark, McLaurin and Ridley in that range of the draft are probably my three favorite picks. And uh, I didn't get I didn't get uh, McLaurin or Chark on on the way back, but I did get Michael Gallup, who I get to stack with Dak Prescott, obviously. Ideally, I would get Blake Jarwin a little later or maybe C.D. Lamb a little later to just kind of lock in. Uh, which lock in like the highest one of the highest pass catching scores in what should be one of the highest scoring passing offenses, which I'm already you know harnessing the benefits of with Dak a little bit. Definitely. Uh, but yeah, I got uh,
1: quick. Oh, sorry, u- you go ahead. Quick U-turn um, uh, on one of the guys that you mentioned there in, the, in that uh, you know mid uh, round range of receivers. Um, if I'm a DJ Chark skeptic, uh, sell me on him. Well. I know he was he was a little he seemed a little bit like
2: uh, he disappeared last year in the second half and I'm, I'm guessing people are kind of souring on him a tiny bit because they're they're thinking like oh yeah he was just a flash in the pan those first four weeks I was right to kind of not take him seriously in the first place but uh, I think a couple things like he got nicked up with something in the second half I can't remember what it was and um, he was still getting a lot of targets it was just he like Minshew had some bad games like he was struggling I remember with the pass rush quite a bit in the season second half but I think That Chark is pretty clearly good because he posted good numbers in in an efficiency sense last year. And the volume was, of course, good. And he's one of the most athletic players in the league. And I don't know if people are overlooking that maybe because he was whatever, like a late second round pick who didn't do anything as a rookie. But He's he's like one of those 40-inch vertical, 130-inch broad jump kind of guys and he yep. runs in the low 43s at 6 foot 4. He was running a lot of snaps in the slot last year too, so that that's something that might not mean much at a glance, but when someone that athletic and that big is running from the slot, I think that that sets up a really high upside scenario because he's he's getting some of those Easier short and intermediate range targets to supplement the the downfield shots that he's taken uh, So it's, it's like you're getting some of the Chris Godwin routes and some of the Mike Evans routes at the same time And you have a reason to believe that the receiver is good at both of them mm-hmm. So I think I think Chark has pretty clearly top 12 upside at receiver and the only reason I don't have more shares of him than I do is because I also really like Ridley and McLaurin and I hate not getting whichever one that I'm not picking um, but yeah, it's like, I, I can't trade up and take them all. Otherwise I would.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that, that's, a, that's definitely a good case. And, um, you know, I, I think I, w- I was surprised at, at how well he did, uh, last year or, uh, relative to uh, his rookie season, I think I, I got a little bit down on him after his rookie season. But um, like you said, the athleticism is certainly there, and, and the ankle injury late in the season uh, slowed his role. But um, you know he'll be back this year, and he'll be the, that true number one um, for for the Jags. Yeah. Do you have any um, reservations just about this Jaguars offense or passing game in general with Minshew back there? I mean, I don't want to get really high hopes
2: about it, and I know I saw PFF say like Gardner Minshew had the higher grade between him and Kyler Murray as rookies, and that's stupid. But <laughs> I think there's something to Minshew. Like if he was if he was just useless, if he wasn't any good, I have trouble explaining how he did. What he did last year, even sure. if it wasn't a full season, even if he had some bad games, it's like good quarterbacks who are veterans have some bad games. I'm not going to use a couple bad games in a rookie season as a reason to write him off. Like Minshew has shown a lot more to this point than Drew Locke, who goes something like three rounds earlier than him in most drafts that I've seen. So it's it's one of those things like I'm not feeling particularly safe about Minshew and and. and Uh, you know, he's, he's, he's one of those guys who might be better in fantasy than real life anyway. Like he might have turnover proneness in real life, something like that. But he ran for a lot of yards last year and he didn't score any rushing touchdowns. So it's something has to give there. Like he either will run for fewer yards and, and have a similar touchdown rate, or he's going to have a flurry of rushing touchdowns. And if he's running well, and if he's, if he's throwing as well as he did last year, and he's got, not just Chark, but LaVisca Chenault now. And I think, by the way, LaVisca Chenault is someone you'll want to try to stack with DJ Chark if you take them in best ball because he's going – he goes later in some drafts than others. But I think D.D. Uh, Westbrook is just going way too high. And you'll you'll want to get either Chark with Chenault or Chark with Conley in your best ball stacks because uh, maybe even Conley would be the better stack option because that's one of those deals like – if if neither of those two is going deep then the jags just aren't really throwing the ball deep that day uh, which could happen but if you can get conley in like the 20th round to to get yourself what is functionally just insurance that in the event that chart doesn't go deep that you get points anyway it's like that's you know a pretty low risk insurance policy that could that could actually be pretty beneficial to you so that's that's why the structural reasons of the the stacks can pay off it's just basically like if, if the price is low enough you're just getting kind of like free assurance on the prior asset. And there's there's even the chance, especially when you're talking to Chenault and Chark, there's a chance that they're just both good if, if Minshew can hold up his peripherals from last year.
1: You sound like a business school guy. What is this? Oh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a business school guy for sure. <laughs> um,
2: I'm, uh, I'm always looking for ways to undermine labor.
1: <laughs> oh, God. Um. So shifting gears off of um, – off of the Jags for a second and, and looking a little bit closer at at this, uh, class of receivers. Are there any obvious, uh, landmines to you that, that people continue to fall for, um, you know, in the fifth to the eighth round, as far as, uh, those receivers go?
2: Yeah, I don't want to call them landmines because I think they're all going to be good players. Like, I don't, I don't think you'll lose this year because you picked these guys. Um, well, actually, I think you might lose this year because of your Deontay Johnson picks, the people who keep taking him in like the fifth round. But uh, I also don't really like the Seattle pair because Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf are both uh, – I guess Metcalf isn't at max efficiency, but Lockett is. Lockett is insanely efficient. I don't understand – how that guy gets the numbers that he does catching, you know, 80% of his targets every year at a 10 plus yards a target. But, um, that's, that's a player who's too good to disappear, you know, and I'm, I'm seeing people paying for Metcalf at these prices that, uh, you either have to project more targets. And if you do, they almost necessarily necessarily need to be at the expense of locket, which I, I just don't consider a possibility, or you have to believe the, the Seahawks throw more. Or you have to believe that Metcalf does more per target than he did last year. Now he only caught 57 of his 100 targets. I would expect him to be more like a 65, 62 percent catch rate kind of guy going forward. And if if he you know progressed to that mean, we're over a thousand yards now. But he wasn't over a thousand yards last year. Is it, it was like 970 or whatever. So at least because there's guys like McLaurin there and guys like um, Chark even Gallup. It's like, I would rather have Gallup and, you know, certainly Calvin Ridley. Like, I don't think that Lockett and Metcalf offer you enough upside, or I should say plausible upside because they basically need the other to get hurt or they need Brian Schottenheimer to get kidnapped before that. The passing game will be enough to, to get both of those or either of those, I should say receivers to their ceilings. Whereas in my opinion, guys like McLaurin, like it's just a clear runway. They can just go nuts as it is. Uh, also Devante Parker, I think is in that category for me. Like he's a good player and I don't think you got to worry about him just like disappearing on you. But I do think you're running a risk of taking guys like Metcalf, Lockett, uh, uh, sorry Devontae Parker, and I think you risk getting them seeing your 13 and a half points per week or whatever, and thinking like, "Oh, that's nice." And then you look at the team beating you, it's like they have Terry McLaurin, who you passed on. Mm. Um, so that's that's how I see it breaking down. It's so, like those guys won't hurt you, but you're
1: you're passing up some real big upside. Okay, yeah, and it, the. That is the most frustrating thing when it comes to Seattle, because it feels like they're just putting a ceiling on themselves by not turning Russell Wilson loose. And, you know, I'm not sold enough on any of those running backs that they have to even come close to making a case for why they have their offense split that way. But, um, you know, looking at it um, from in 2018, uh, Seattle. Through it, only forty-seven point five percent of the time. Last year, there was a seven percent increase, up to fifty-four point three, and that that was still only good enough for twenty-seventh in the league. But it it certainly would, you know, I think it qualifies as a step in the in the right direction. So, what if, you know, say for instance, Seattle continues down that that road and maybe you know ends up being top twenty in pass rate? Do you think that 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 would be something that uh, is a feasible and b something that would make you reconsider. I mean, uh, there's no way of knowing it ahead, ahead of time, uh, right? Early, but you know, I, would that be something that that raises the ceilings for both uh, Lockett and and um, DK for you?
2: Well, if Wilson throws more, then it's it's automatic. I mean, it would it would be a settled matter. Lockett and Metcalf will go as far as that team wants to take them. But they last year, like I think they, I think last year might have presented one of the better case game script setups for them because you had Chris Carson fumbling and getting nicked up. You had Penny getting hurt. You had the defense being well below its tr- uh, historical uh, standards. And, and that's that last part I think is something everyone's overlooking, particularly in the event. And this is ridiculous that it's coming down to things like this, but particularly in the event that Quentin Dunbar does not get suspended for that ridiculous robbery story Um, which I I don't have any sort of lens to to view that one through. That's just some of the weirdest stuff I've ever heard. It sounds pretty bad, uh, but I I also haven't heard any and I haven't seen any reports ever ever since he like turned himself in him and the DeAndre Baker incident. But if Quinton Dunbar, if Dunbar is not suspended, he's maybe a better corner than Shaquille Griffin, who's a really good corner. And the only good one they had last year, like last year, it was pretty easy. You went against the Seahawks. What you do is you go three wide because they stay in the four, three base. They'd rather have KJ Wright covering your slot receiver than their uh, third corner. So that's, that's how bad they were at corner last year. And then the, the second corner who's still on the field, they can't even find a way to hide this guy. Trey flowers. You just go at him every play. You throw the ball at the slot receiver who's on the linebacker. And if you're not, you throw it at Trey flowers. Cause he'll just like interfere with the receiver every time. And so it was way easier to throw the ball on the Seahawks last year than it would be this year. If Dunbar's in there giving them, you know, the, uh, you know, they, they, they keep, they, they don't do shadow coverages ever. They just have their defense loaded out the way it is. And they need each half to do its part. And last year, one half was just flawed with Trey flowers. Now Dunbar is there. He he fits everything they do. He's like a long armed 6'2 corner, really athletic, and he, he played receiver at Florida, so that's why he took so long to catch on in the NFL. It wasn't because he lacked athletic talent or anything. It's because he was switching positions, and he really turned a corner the past couple of years. Even though he didn't have much, like the, the Washington pass rush, I guess was good, but like he was he was not in as good of a scheme setup as he will be with with the Seahawks. Like Dunbar and Griffin are just going to look way better both because of Dunbar being there. And I can see the Seahawks leaning on the run that much more if they get better results from their pass coverage.
1: Interesting. OK. All right. So that that all tracks. For Sorry sure. that it's so roundabout. But it's like basically, yeah, Dunbar might keep the points
2: down if he doesn't go to jail forever for, I guess, just robbing Flip card watches. games
1: yeah. or something. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what – <laughs> too weird. I don't have anything on that. That was such like a – oh, my god. Um. But yeah, I I see I see what you mean, though, when when it comes to Seattle just being being good with, you know, getting into game scripts where they just are running out the clock because their their defense uh, is, you know, preventing them from ever falling behind. And, you know, in in that case, you don't need Russell Wilson chucking it 35 times and exposing him to getting sacked. He gets sacked a lot. So anytime that you can. Oh, it's bad, the there's no
2: justification for what they do, but that is the way their their broken brains work, however.
1: Yeah. You know, because if it worked 7 years ago, it, it has to work now. Yeah, why would have you have throw no the ball? Yeah. If no one you else have is. a lead, if you're winning, why would
2: you throw the ball? Answer that. Why would you throw it? Do you want a bigger get, lead
1: or something? No.
2: Have you ever seen have you seen what happens if what can happen if you throw the ball? It like, can hit a bird, the bird explodes intercepted maybe you get sacked uh all these bad things can happen if you if you throw the ball and conversely
1: running the ball only is always
2: good you know what pete carroll and brian schottenheimer believe in that old football map i don't know if you saw that there was some book from like 1939 about like the theory of football and it was seriously one of those old-timey maps that say here be dragons Uh, In the in the red zone basically it it would have like this these these arrows that start at the zero to the 40 and say like opportunity zone grim zone of grim determination and then when then you get to the red zone and it's like it literally says I think to kick a field goal on first down because I guess they sucked so much at kicking field goals back then that like half of them would get blocked so you would need the second and third and fourth down to kick your field goal they would try not to score a touchdown the closer they were to the end zone. Like, that's, that's, that's kind of the, um, that's, that's, that's Pete Carroll's like football ancestor, his, 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 his immediate ancestor. My God. Um, you should look it up. It was, it was an awesome, it's, it's amazing how stupid people were back then. It's like, we're, we're dumb now. And we were even dumber back then.
1: (laughs) At least we have cool visualizations to let us know how dumb we are nowadays though. Um, do you have any other uh, last uh, thoughts you wanted to throw out there on, on your approach for the for this uh, NFFC best ball? Oh uh, well, I, I took Will Fuller after Gallup, and that's just because
2: I'm a Fuller truther. I think he works great for best ball setups. Uh, Took Tevin Coleman after that. I take Will Fuller and Tevin Coleman in every draft. I'm probably going to take Sammy Watkins later because it's just what i what my it's what my role is um but yeah i'm gonna to be serious i'm gonna try to get some more shares of like running backs who i think could could get snaps if other guys get hurt um and you know just just hope that my prospect background gives me an edge on some of these later picks where I'm assuming some of these other guys are going to have to just be taking names they've never seen before.
1: Yeah. I think that, that that's definitely going to play to your strengths. The, the longer that this thing goes on, the, um, you know, that, that definitely uh, will, will tilt the field in your favor. You know, exactly those, those wide receiver fives on, on certain teams. It just, these guys, the avenue. these
2: guys are going to take like Tim Brown in the 20th round or something.
1: Bozos. Um, yeah. Alright, that's gonna wrap things up for today's show from Ariague I'm John McKechnie. Thanks for listening to the Roadwire NFL podcast brought to you by Dynasty.